Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Do you want to start a podcast? I know I did. And you're listening to it. Thanks to the help of Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's totally free and has everything you need in a podcast in one place. You can record, edit your podcast right from your phone or computer and distribute it to listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Everything you need all in one place, completely free. What's stopping you? Go get Anchor. James Naismith. The OG of basketball, the creator of the game loved by so many all over the world, all before the 1900s. And it was able to grow to a global game all within his lifetime. From a family looking for a better life, coming from Scotland all the way to Canada, James was able to take help from family members after being orphaned at a young age and make it out of a small town to a major university and take his faith and values and help young men better their lives through faith and exercise. He seemed to never stop working and never want to stop helping others. He became a doctor, a veteran, and of course, a Hall of Famer. We're going to get into the life of James Naismith and the creation of the great game of basketball. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Sports Moments Podcast where every sports moment deserves its replay. I'm your host, Ethan Reese, your sports historian and giant goofball, which best describes this show, sports history and goofballness thrown in there. This is not a Dateline-only facts podcast. I will joke around, tell the most factually accurate story I can, but have a good time doing it. So now let's sit back and jump into the sports time machine. Now let's get into James Naismith in the history of basketball. Let's jump in the time machine and go way back to the 1800s. The 1820s to be exact is how our family of the Naismiths ended up in Canada. And yes... I'm going to break your hearts here. James Naismith was Canadian. I know, it is the worst. 
If I could, I would boycott basketball because, I mean, come on, really? A Canadian is like the worst thing ever. <laughs> I am just kidding. But yes, he was born in Canada, but his family was originally from Scotland. They were Scottish and they were immigrants and they had this program in Britain to send people over to Canada, one of their colonies, to basically settle there, and they would give them different things, like tools, blankets, seeds for grains, and a small amount of money for them to harvest and grow things and grow the settlements there in Canada. And it worked out because Canada loves England. It is like... You know, we consider it like the 51st state because it's so close to us and resembles us so much. But they love Canada. When the queen, the queen from England comes there regularly and they make a big deal out of it. I don't think the queen even comes to America very rarely. All we have is now that one prince and his wife. And that's about it. Like, we don't get royalty here almost ever. So it's really... Interesting that they always go to Canada and Canada is very much involved in that. But we digress. So they came over into Ontario area near where Mississippi River goes all the way up there. So that his family came over there. A Robert and Anne Young were his grandparents that came over. And let me tell you, this is one road trip for the ages. It is a road, okay, road trip. It is a sail trip. Came over on a boat. There is no road that connects Britain to America, but they came over on a boat with, get this, 11 kids. Could you imagine that ride? That had to be awful. Traveling on a boat in the 1800s was not easy. You had limited food, limited space, and who knows how many other people and family they were traveling with. Oh my goodness, I would pull my hair out if I had to make that trip. If you had to just go on a road trip to another state with 11 kids, you would probably pull your hair out, let alone weeks, months trip on a boat where you can't leave. Wow. Wow. So they made that hard journey from Scotland to Canada, and that is where the family started. And they grew the community there. This family really made the town around Bernie's Corner. And it was really kind of their town. and Their family kind of populated this up to 75 people, which is a booming amount back then. They, they had blacksmiths, churches, schools, shoemakers, um, carriage shops, general merchandise store, and a post office. That means like they were big time. They had a post office. They were big time back then. So this was this was their community. But unfortunately, in 1851, the t village burnt down because this happened all the time. All the buildings are made of wood. Brick was you know slowly becoming popular, but it wasn't easy or cheap to get. Wood was abundant. And so they would make these things and heat them with fire and wooden fire. I guess they just don't mix. I, I mean, I tried to make a fire the other day with bricks and it didn't work very well. So I think that bricks are pretty good. <laughs> um, so they kind of 
rebuilt it, but not fully. It was just kind of what was mainly necessary is how they rebuilt it back up. And that's where kind of James Naismith, uh, he kind of started. He was born in 1861 in Ontario. So, yes, he is from Canada, but has a Scottish background and he talks like Sean Connery. He doesn't. There is a video clip um, on YouTube, an audio clip, not a video, of him talking, and he doesn't sound Canadian or Scottish or anything. He's, you know, he doesn't have a big accent. It sounds like a happy-go-lucky guy back, actually, when you listen to it. So, he was born on immigrants, and based off the picture of the family, there is a picture of him and his siblings. He has... Um, Two siblings, a sister, I think two sisters. And I'm pretty sure um, one of them is de demonized or uh, some kind of haunting happened. Because his sister, his youngest sister may be the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> she, I know she's a child, she's like a toddler in this picture, but, and it's black and white. But man, is she scary looking. These pictures are scary. Like, I swear, if this picture was hung anywhere, you would automatically assume this place is haunted. I am leaving immediately. It is crazy that it is so scary looking. Um, but I digress. Um, so yeah, he did have two siblings. But unfortunately, at the age of nine, he is the oldest one. And his parents contracted typhoid fever and passed away. Um, luckily, they did not get typhoid fever, um, but they were orphaned. So they went to live with their grandparents. And a little bit about typhoid fever. It is kind of a salmonella-type bacteria that can take 6 to 30 days to kind of overtake you a little bit. Uh, fever um, that kind of, kind of really kind of takes over and back in the day obviously we didn't have the medical things we have now and towards the 1900s they actually developed a vaccine for this so they weren't too far away from a vaccine didn't being away from this but who knows if they would have taken it and how effective it was back then is um who knows you know so it is crazy and they actually believe that typhoid fever came from athens in 430 bc just to give you a mindset this was around the Civil War times and the Spanish-American War. 80,000 Civil War soldiers, 80,000, were killed by typhoid fever. So not even being in battle, they died from this disease. That is crazy. That has so many. And back then, when the population was much less, it is amazing that they did that. It is so crazy. That this was such rampant and so deadly. And now you don't hear about it except for like third world countries. Like we have a vaccine for it. It's something that doesn't get passed on and we can treat it much better now. But sadly, in 1872, his grandmother passes away. And so him and his siblings are now left under the care of his uncle Peter. And Peter was an author authoritarian type parent. And honestly, let's be honest, what 18, 1900 parents was not? So many parents back then were, you know, get the rod, you know, you 
do what you're told. No back sass. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. I'm your father now. You are going to do what I say. No matter what. James, you are mine now. <laughs> that That's kind of what I picture Peter as. But they kind of describe him as authoritarian. James writes a lot. That's why we have all this information. He's a big writer, big studier, and, you know, he's a big in the education and goes through that a lot. So you'll you'll hear that throughout this tale. But he attends, obviously, the one-room schoolhouse in the town. Um, he's not very, like, academic strong, which is surprising because he ends up getting a doctorate. You know, he's Dr. James Naismith, so it is a little surprising that he is. But he's also a great athlete. You know, he excels, and he's a natural leader, they say. And so he would, you know... His peers would follow him and show his like leadership on the athletic field. He was always working. He was on the farm before school. He was working on the farm, in the woods, chopping trees, sawing logs, driving horses. And then he would walk five miles. Five! That is at least an hour to school and an hour back. If you're walking around 10 to 12 minute miles... Like that is a long walk, and you are sending your kid to go walk five miles away. Who knows if they're actually going to go to school? And you never actually know if they're going to school, if they're skipping school. Like the, Back in the day, it is crazy how independent we made our kids, but also people were less crazy, and there was less people. Also, you know, he would walk that way and maybe see nobody or only see people he knew. There was a town of 75 people. You knew everybody. So if anything happened, you knew who might be involved. So he was always working. He was a very hard worker, always doing what he needed to get things done and always working. Now, James Naismith was an athlete. Of course, I mean, how do you create one of the greatest games of all time and not be an athlete? Usually you're going to have some athletic prowess or things that made you enjoy games or some type of sport. So he was an athlete. And one thing they did after he did all his chores and everything, he would gather with the other children at the blacksmith workshop. They would play a game in that area around the butcher not the butcher shop, the blacksmith shop. And it was a mixture of tag and hide and seek. And, um, and it was called Duck on a Rock. In this game, we'll go over a little bit more detail in just a little bit. This was the game that led to basketball. It's obviously not going to be exactly like basketball, but you can see things that he pulled from. So we will go through that, but just let's go through everything that James was involved in, you know, he was hunting in the fall, you know, going through the forest, he would hunt squirrels, pigeons, um, bunnies, it sounds weird to say bunnies, rabbits, I'll say rabbits because bunnies just sounds little cute, little things, he hunted rabbits or hares um, with, with bows and arrows, I mean, this, back in the day where guns weren't always prevalent, they were very simple guns, so bows and arrows were still very popular. And as he grew up, though, he did get a gun and start hunting deer and lynx, which I just assume you're hunting lynx more out of protection. Those things are scary looking, man. <laughs> they would scare me for sure. 
But in the winter time, you know, he would go snowshoeing. Ice hockey was a thing they would play. Be skating everywhere. Um, tobogganing is a national pastime in Canada. If you don't toboggan, they literally kick you out of the country. It's a lesser known rule that happens all the time. Why do you think so many Canadian actors and singers live in America? Because they got kicked out because they missed the tobogganing rules. <laughs> no, no, no. Tobogganing is not a law, not a rule <laughs> there, but it's very common there. So it's very common to toboggan, which is just fun. Sledding, come on. Summer, of course, he was swimming, and um, it was a very common activity with his friends. And just, you know, he was that overall leader. That, you know, what are we doing to James? James, you know, we're going to go swimming. We're going to go ice hockey. He was the deciding factor. And, you know, he helped. I don't know if he created this game of Duck on a Rock, um, but he was very integral, and they apparently played this a lot. And so... And the game of duck on a rock combines tag and throwing rocks, of course, by the name. So what it is, is players would form a line in a distance about 15 to 20 feet from the base stone, big stone they would have. And they would have an object or you know another stone on top of that base stone that you were trying to knock off. And so you, you would take turns throwing your stone to knock off that stone. And in between you and that stone was a guard. And if you missed the stone, you didn't get to the base stone, then you had to run after the stone you threw without getting tagged by the guard. So that's how it kind of mixed up throwing and tag, of course. And they, through like all this time of doing this, they figured out that the way to throw it was more of an arcing shot. Like in basketball, you arc it, you don't throw it straight at the goal, it won't go in. So they would arc it over, and then the rock wouldn't bounce as far away, so you would less likely to get ch um, caught in the chase to get your rock so this was a very you know common way and it shows you too that through playing a game you develop new rules or new strategies which is very common because the first basketball rules he has and everything do change over time you know the very first game played is not the game that we'd see today very actually different and it's something that has changed over time and strategies have changed. So it's just something to kind of see that games don't just stay the same. You know, every sport we play has evolved over time. It's not always been the same as it was the very first time. So you just got to remember that. So he was an athlete, but he was also a scholar. He attended Miguel University in Montreal, Quebec. And this is a very, like, decent-sized university. Um, it's be about the size of your average state school today. Um, it's not it's not private school. It's more of a state school, and you have um, today it has roughly 40,000 people that go there. Back then we don't really have the numbers. This was in the 1800s, and um, that's where he began his four-year Bachelor of Arts program. He he had never really studied before because. 
I mean, if you're in a one-room schoolhouse, are you studying? Let's be honest, you're probably not studying. You're just going because your parents are like, you need to have some education. And I, I don't think homework was as involved. It was more important to be involved with the farm than do your schoolwork. It was, things have changed a little bit now. It's more important to do your schoolwork more than the farm work, maybe. Um, so you just got to remember those things. It's a different time. So he never studied before, so he had to actually study and buckle down when he got there. And he he made the decision when he got there to, like, you know, even though I love sports, I'm going to put that on the side because I need to focus on this because this education is going to lead me to where I want to go. And it's very important to him. So um, he was very involved in the schoolwork. And then one day, as it goes, you know, two of his friends convinced him, you know, let's go to the athletic program. Let's go join some sports at the university just to stay fit. It's wintertime. There's not as much to do outside. Let's go. It's Canada. It's wintertime. You can't do anything outside. Let's be honest. <laughs> so he goes with his friends and he just gets, you know, swept up in it and he gets just so involved and he just loves it. And, you know, he goes with the gymnasium and starts participating and gymnastics, rugby, and just enjoying it so much so that he, by his junior year, he gets awarded the highest honor at the university for athletic involvement. They didn't have organized athletic programs like they do today at most universities. It was just, you know, you're at the athletic place, you are our most athletic person kind of thing. So very different kind of time there, but he was the most athletic person. He had other extracurricular activities as well, you know, he was involved in the student government and the literary society, um, which is more like the debate today. He was also involved in the society choir. And they, they developed a song while we were there um, that led to the workings of the song Space Jam that was in um, the movie Space Jam. You know, the words were like the very same words that were used in the song as an homage to... James Naismith to kind of connect it, you know, without being overt. We're we're really connecting to James Naismith because that makes total sense. So a song about space when they rarely knew about space back in the 1800s. <laughs> no, no, they did not develop the song for Space Jam, but he was in the choir, so he he had a kind of a, a wide variety. He really took the chance at school to really you know explore everything he enjoyed and everything he loved and in 1887 after you know successful years at university he you know was prized with the honor of you know having got his philosophy and hebrew reason he got involved in the hebrew things is he later goes into the theology um, program at the school so he graduated you know top 10 in his class in 1887 so he really buckled down to his studies even after getting involved in extracurriculars he knew that you know studies was where it's going to be so after he graduated he started to enroll in the theology program that was affiliated with that mcgill college and so he would um try to finance his education through this by being a structure at the physical education gymnasium. I know it sounds a little different, you know, he like a trainer um, or a person that, you know, ran the gym, basically, is what he kind of got involved in. Studied hard, but came, became involved in the extracurricular 
extracurricular religious activities. You know, he was a member of the the journal, this newspaper, and active in the literary society of, again, the debate team, and, you know, the missionary society. He was just a guy that was always involved, always doing things. He was never a guy just to sit down, always involved. You know, that go-getter, that guy that just makes you annoyed because I just want to sit here, and this guy just keeps going, and I have to do, <laughs> I have to live up to him. He did win um, some theological scholarships, but he also was not liked by a lot of his professors at the time because he was so involved in athletics. And they thought, like, some of these sports, you know, like rugby and lacrosse, you know, it was like legalized murder. It was like, you know, you're beating on somebody, you're out to hurt somebody. And they were very much, you know, love kind of religious things and they they just didn't like they thought it was more like a devilish thing you know you're letting the devil out when you play these sports no they're not gonna get you. it's just a sport a way to like release tension and stress and so it was just really interesting that they thought this back in the day as <laughs> so many like religious universities now have major pro sports programs you know you look at notre dame is one of the biggest catholic universities out there and, you know, huge sports program you know, they weren't Catholic, they were Presbyterian, but still, you know, it is a Christian university and the ideology wasn't straight too far away from each other at the time. So he was like, himself was like, that doesn't make any sense. I love these sports. I'm not the devil. The devil doesn't come through me. <laughs> I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep being involved in these sports. And so he just didn't care that it was just that his professors were like this. He, that was something that was about him too. We just he knew who he was, what his faith was, and he didn't care about like what other people thought. So during during a rugby game that he was playing his senior year in seminary, the, the theological school, a player on his team uttered some profanity, which was back then like oh drat bark tarnations, you know, stuff that today. We wouldn't even bat an eye at as profanity was profanity back then. You gotta remember that words change, languages change. The stuff that we think is profane was not profane back in the day. You know, it's just, you know, language changes over time. And this was, you know, almost 150 years ago. So languages changed a lot back then. So these words, you know, changed the course of James' life, really. Hearing that, he was like, you know, I can connect, you know, religion, you know, the, my religious beliefs and upbringing with athletics. You know, there are so many people to minister to through athletics. You know, so many men play athletics and you can minister to them because they, a lot of them are like, you know, obviously not involved. If they're involved in sports and at the time, many, you know, ministers and pastors at the time didn't think that, you know, sports was you know, religious or was anti-religion, he thought he saw a, a sector to go after, and he really went after it. So after he was done there in, in 18 in 1890 in the summer, he learned about the YMCA and the the programs they had in Canada and the U.S. And he, you know, said goodbye to everyone in Canada and traveled to Springville, Massachusetts, because he wanted to be involved. And enrolled at the YMCA training school where he could grow in their school and learn more about it 
to because this was an organization that focused on Christian values with athletics and it was right up his alley and he really helped grow the sport and actually transformed how these locations look I'll explain that a little bit later but he did transform how YMCA's and gymnasiums in general look because of the sport he created so here he could focus on those two things the spirituality and the athletics and here you know remember he was a senior back in the day he he met these men that really helped him grow while he was there you know there was race simpson who was a police officer at the time randy jones who you know was a rancher and you know james you know to help supplement his income was a construction worker at the time did some construction work um felipe rose was uh, an advocate for indian rights in the area and um glenn hughes was a, a leather smith in the area that really was involved in rugby and lacrosse and alex brill who was a, a soldier stationed in the area and they just kind of over time they they, they met at the ymca and they grew and they they're like what can we do to grow this you know this thing nationwide to make it huge what can we do and they were like they all like realized they were all singers and they all enjoyed singing and, and it, was, it was great and so they they were like well let's write down the things that make ymca great and let's talk about it and let's, let's make a song about it and they did and they wrote this song you know called the ymca you know if you've ever been to a a wedding you dance to this ymca it's fun to stay at the ymca you can have a good time. You can do what you feel. We are singing this song to you. I don't know about all the words, but they developed the song and it became a huge hit and really grew the brand name of the YMCA, you know, across the country and really grew their brand and grew it to where like everyone wanted to have this. And this is utter nonsense. He was not part of the village people. <laughs> he did not create this song, but that song was very influential <laughs> to help the YMCA. It's a very fun song to dance to and sing to. And those are the actual people, the names I listed in the village people. Minus one, James Naismith was not in there. <laughs> um, that was another way. But he was very involved just as much as the village people as growing the YMCA. He, he loved the YMCA. It was a great part of his life. So his his years there, you know, he taught various courses and, you know, rugby. He played there back then. Colleges really weren't playing each other in sports or the intercollegiate. You you would play at your YMCA a sport, and your YMCA would play another regional YMCA in that sport. And that's kind of how you would develop a league or you know have that competition because you may not have enough people to go through all the rugby and everything. What they really wanted to do was develop indoor physical education. The YMCA is a building. They have a gymnasium. Um, very di different than what our gymnasiums are today but um the problem was all the sports they played were indoor sports you know football lacrosse hockey um rugby all these sports were in were outdoor sports they didn't really have an indoor sport you could do gymnastics you could do, you know, the version of weightlifting or exercises and stuff like that. But you didn't have the indoor support to play. So the superintendent at the time um, really wanted to 
have something for them to do. Because basically you become restless if you're not getting, like a lot of these guys, you know, they, they're football rugby players and they, they, they kind of need to let go of that aggression or frustration or stress they have. And they do it through sports, but they didn't have a sport. So they, he was like, he tasked them, multiple people, it wasn't just James, there's multiple people, create a game we can play indoors. And so that's what he did. You know, James like, I'm going to take this and we're going to, we're going to make it good. And he wanted to create something that was, you know, fair for all players and not free of rough play. You know, you wouldn't get hurt most likely in this game. Now that was important. You don't want to get hurt playing indoors and playing indoors you don't have the soft ground to land on. It's hard, hardwood. You know, there everything in there is hard, so you don't you won't have that rough play because you're gonna get hurt. So James, you know, analyzed the games of the day that he enjoyed playing. You know, rugby, lacrosse, soccer, hockey, baseball, all those things. And so he observed that the larger ball didn't move as swift as the smaller ball. So he, so it was less dangerous, less you know chance at you know, having the, um, you know, injuries um, on rough play if you had a smaller ball because you could see it coming. It's not going to go as fast. And, you know, next he observed that the contact and rough play in other sports occurred when they were carrying slash dribbling, you know, stick handling. That's when the contact occurs. You're running down the field. You're trying to knock the person off less than, you know, when you are, you know, standing there when you first get the ball or anything like that. So his first decision was to remove running with the ball. Yes, this was something you would not expect to see now, but just imagine they didn't run. They didn't dribble the basketball in the first version of basketball. It was one of the biggest differences. I would equate this to uh, Ultimate Frisbee. If you've ever seen that, um, you, you throw the Frisbee, you catch it, you stop. You don't keep running with the Frisbee. That's very much what basketball was at the early points. Um, next, he observed that much of the jostling and rough play in the defense was a defense of the goal. So he decided to make the goal up over people. You can't defend something that you can't reach. You know, why that kind of, you know, a lot of the times you see that in rugby, lacrosse, and hockey, you know, everyone gets by that goal and that's where like everyone's hit each other rough playing and everything like that so like let's move where the goal is very smart idea this posed a new problem though the goal was above the plane you know how do they shoot how do they score how do you get points and so he, he remembered back to the duck on the rock where if you lob it or you arc it you know it goes up and so that's kind of how he developed it and that the game the word basketball was because he asked for something round for the from the like maintenance staff like hey i need something round we can throw this um, ball into a soccer ball and they came back with a beach basket a peach basket not beach basket <laughs> a peach basket and you, you know that thing's like that works out great you know you throw the ball in it fits and, and, you know, you can arc it into it, and it's going to be a great option. And that's how they developed the name of basketball because, you know, it had a basket. So um, he developed these 13 rules, and I will not go through these 13 rules. You can look them up. Very, you know, rule book sounding rules. 
um, very bland and almost like you can't imagine it until you're actually playing it type thing. But the main difference over it, as we talked about, was no dribbling, no you know, running with the ball, all that stuff. You know, throw the ball from one spot, they catch it, they they, they would stop, allow him to stop in his movements and, you know, stop. After a few steps, um, there, if the team committed three consecutive fouls, it would count just as a goal. You wouldn't have free throws for another few, for years past that. So it's just, and fouls were, you know, like hitting and, you know, pushing and things like that. That was the fouls back then. So those were kind of the differences we had. So, you know, he, and that was in 1891. And another big difference that they had also was it was nine versus nine. And there was a reason for this because he had 18 people in his class, 18 guys in his class. So he wanted everyone to play. And it was the easiest way to do it was go nine versus nine. And um, that's how they developed it. It was a simple, and, you know, they get pared down and, you know, he doesn't, he, he's not involved in all the other rule changes that get made throughout the time of basketball. But, you know, this was when basketball was invented. And we'll go through some other main events of basketball, like, throughout his lifetime. Because, you know, it's important. He was still involved in basketball throughout all of his life. and But it grew bigger than he could have ever imagined this game to grow because you know he played this game duck on a rock you know he just thought you know we played this here or maybe we'll play some other ymcas over time but it grew huge so um just some background on on james so three years after this he marries maud evelyn sherman and has five kids with maud um not a whole lot about the relationship. It seems like they were very loving. You know, you have five kids, you probably love them. Um, one thing I would say is that they had three unique names to give their kids, uh, Margaret, Helen, and John. And then they, I guess they just ran out of names and named <laughs> their kids after themselves. Their, their last two kids were Maud and James. It's like, <laughs> like what? You named your kids after you? Like, I, I understand a lot of times you name usually your firstborn after the father. That happens a lot. I, I don't understand that, but, you know, you know, they named their last child James. So that was another thing. Like, I don't have any more names. Just name them after me. And they also named their daughter Maud after the mom, which is very unusual because you didn't usually do that back then. Or even now, you name your kid after your mom. It was very unusual to do. And actually... It is still a junior. If you're if you're named after any one of your parents, you are a junior, even if you're a girl. But that doesn't necessarily necessarily gets listed or anything like that. So you know, so through all, they get married and then, you know, the game starts to grow after their marriage. Really, you know, the free throw starts to get involved in there. And keep in mind also one difference also in the basketball world. Everything was one point. There's no the point system hasn't changed yet. It will change over time too. So free throws were invented, and so they were worth one. And, you know, then they developed the two point shot. In 1895, they started to have backboards. You know, they hated losing the ball, <laughs> so they had backboards. In 18 
96 was the first college game. You know, a lot of it was YMCA versus YMCA. This was the first intercollegiate college game, which was Iowa versus the University of Chicago. It was an exhibition game, and the final score was 15 to 12. The year later, they developed dribbling and five-on-five, trimming it down, which was great help. You know, it helped. What it really helped was, you know, allowing, you know, more teams to form because having nine players, if one of them gets hurt, it's hard to get nine players together just for a team, let alone have them all play and not get hurt or one of them not get sick and not show up. So it was very, very, if it helped a lot to trim it down to nine, dribbling, moving around, um, they, they, that also helped a lot. And in 18, 98, James made a big move to Kansas where he could continue his studies, and they also made him the coach of college. <laughs> the college. He was the first coach at Kansas University. And the worst coach at Kansas University. They just, <laughs> I always think that's funny to hear. The only guy to have a losing record at Kansas basketball is James Naismith, the inventor of college, of basketball. He invented the sport, and yet he had a losing record in the sport. I know, you, as you can know, you don't, you can't judge it all by wins and losses. You know, he may, he was more of a guy that was developer of men, and maybe not so much about the strategy of the sport. So that happened too. Um, and then. In 1989, the National Basketball League, the NBL, was created the first professional league. This league, you know, switched names and places and all this stuff multiple times, and it changes all a lot until 1946, the NBA starts. And that still, there was a lot of different leagues jostling for who would be the, the league. Um, so another thing that developed in 1904 was the out-of-bounds so there wasn't just you played all over the court. And then in 1932, they developed the half court. You know, so they could separate things. And then the pinnacle of all of this is in 1936. They are have their first Olympic induction. They are part of the Olympics. It's like... We made it. And all this time, James Naismith is still alive. He gets to see the sport he created in a little gymnasium in a classroom go from that all the way to a global sport that is played in the Olympics. And he, like, that is crazy to think about, that he went from that. So it is crazy that he got to see all that growth. In the, in the Olympics, of course... North America swept. It was the United States got gold, Canada got silver, and Mexico got the bronze. So all North America gold. <laughs> all North America taking the medals home. In 1939, they had the first championship um, for basketball in the NCAA. And that um, that champion was Oregon of all, all schools. <laughs> they're, they're a school you know, but not a school you think of as a national powerhouse. And through all this time, you know, he's still involved in Kansas. 
he goes from being a coach to a professor, AD, but he's there basically the remainder of his life. He's a big influence in Kansas and grows their sports and athletic program a lot. Unfortunately, in 1939, that year, he has a brain hemorrhage and passes away. Um, um, a few years earlier, you know, his wife does pass away as well. A few years earlier, he does remarry in 1939. That year, he passes away. But, you know, they're not together very long before then. And he had actually retired in 1938. So he, he was just really a great, um, from all intents and purposes, a great man, a great guy for the just sports in general, growing sports, um, not only in the YMCA, but in the collegiate level. You know, he was part of Kansas University for years, like almost, you know, at least 30, like almost 40 years. He was involved in Kansas University, growing not only their basketball program, but their whole athletic program, you know, showing that he thought athletics was a great way to not only reach, you know, athletic people, but just everybody, you know, reach across the world, reach young, young people and help them grow. And so it was great. And, you know, and some things that additional that he did, you know, he served in the military in World War One in France. You know, he got to be there. He was a chaplain. I'm not saying he fought a lot, but he was a chaplain. He was there. He was there with men grieving, losing, you know, losing friends, people that had passed. He was there. And, you know, to take time away from, you know, what he was doing, developing here, and to go there, even just to be a chaplain, it's still an important part because it's something that men needed over there, obviously. Um, And so it was just very hard, you know, to imagine, you know, a it's not hard to imagine a guy that was such a great influential person develop a sport that was so influential. He was, you know, influential. He was a leader. He he grew a sport. You know, he grew the sport to not only be a little sport. He grew it to be a global sport. And, you know, he deserves all the accolades he got. He is in multiple Hall of Fames. The Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame. The Canadian Olympic Hall of Fame. The Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. Ontario Sports Hall of Fame. Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame. McGill University Hall of Fame. Oklahoma City Hall of Fame. Kansas Hall of Fame. The National, the Bas- NBA Hall of Fame. Professional Basketball Hall of Fame. All these Hall of Fames he's a part of, of course, because he created the game, but he was involved in these areas. He wasn't just... A person that created a game he was a person that grew the game he was an advocate for the game he grew it yeah he only coached for a few seasons at Kansas but he never gave up growing the sport and growing athletics because he believed it was a great way for people to grow and be great people as well so all in all he was a great man and let's just take a, a break here and look at you know some takeaways from his life number one he was Canadian yes creator of basketball that we all assume so Americanized he was Canadian but he did invent the game in America so you can't say it was invented in America so you do have that number two he named his daughter and son after him and his wife they have two juniors in their family. They have Maude Jr. and James Jr. 
unique, I would say so. <laughs> Number three, he had a losing record at Kansas as a coach. What? How, how does he not just go to like the ref or anything or the other teams like... And is like, I invented this game. I know that you can't do that. <laughs> Obviously, the rules have changed over time. And everything he invented is not still the same. But still, I don't know how you can just <laughs> continuously lose. And, and obviously, losing sport, athletic sports wasn't the, what it is today. Football was was bigger. Baseball was bigger. Those were the more important sports at the time. But still, this sport kind of grew and you know really grew to a point that's staggering. Number four, he got to see the Olympics. He got to be there for the Olympics where basketball was first there. And that's in 1912, they had first exposition, but in 1936, he got to be there for that. And number five, he got to see And number five, he was Scottish, Canadian, without a, without a accent. We'll see that here as we as we play off. He doesn't have an accent that I can tell from a certain area, but you know it's very interesting where he came from and how you know speaking is different. So those are a few takeaways. Great man, you know. It's from all instances. It seems like he was a great man that you know really led multiple people, grew this sport. Oh, sorry. Number five, number five. Gymnasiums were changed after he developed the sport. They weren't as tall as they were. They were able to put the goal ten feet up, but there was just another ten feet above that. If you've ever played basketball and you know, like if you're playing in a low area and you try to shoot high, because sometimes you can, like if you're shooting a full court shot, you're going to throw that ball really high. And he, because he developed this game, gymnasium ceilings all required to be higher. And so he effectively transformed how gymnasiums were made because he invented this game. All gymnasiums had to be reconstructed or when they were built had to think about the game of basketball and so he was very influential in how gymnasiums look today so thank you for listening to the sports moments podcast i hope you enjoyed today's tale if you did please give us a review or five stars or wherever you listen to it helps us grow our community and help tell more engaging stories. You can follow us at Sports Moments Pod on Instagram and Twitter. We post pictures about stories, what happened today in history, different things like that. Just try to be a good sports overall social media company. We still are a new podcast. We're still growing, still working on a few kinks. Still working on our website. So if you would like to contact us with a great topic or your view on any episode we've done, you can email us at sportsmomentspodcasts at gmail.com. And as we grow, we're looking for great youth sports charities to donate to because I think it's important to give the youth 
a chance to learn about sports and gain that love so they be- can become sports historians as well. So if you have a, a great charity that you are involved in or you think we should help out, please contact us as well. Again, thank you for listening and come back next week for another episode of the Sports Moments Podcast, where every sports moment deserves its replay. In a world. In a world. In a world where all your sports are played outdoors, one man will stand up and say, let's put a roof over the court. And that man invented with his mustache and his circular Harry Potter glasses. He stood up and said, We're playing basketball this summer. The inventor, James Naismith, in theaters near you. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.